You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am so excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you are listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order you a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, run to a bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get your copy today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Chris Seeley. Chris is an associate professor of philosophy at Fairfield University. Her research interests include philosophy of race, continental philosophy, and post-colonial theory. She is the author of Moments of Disruption and is currently working on a new project entitled Creolizing the Nation, the Argument for an Alternative Ontology. In this episode, we talk about colonialism, stereotypes, bad faith, subversive practices, and so much more. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. I am very interested in this question because I don't think that I've ever asked you this. How did you get interested in philosophy? In philosophy? No, you're right. You've never asked me this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How did I get interested in philosophy? I mean, I think like for most of us, my, my finding philosophy was like a happy accident. And part of that happy accident had everything to do with me being at an undergraduate institution like Spelman College that really valued like a liberal arts core experience. So the short of that is to say, you know, I had to take philosophy as part of the, you know, one of the, one of my core requirements. And so I just happened to find myself in a philosophy class. But even before I like happened to find myself in a philosophy class and getting like much joy out of it, I think, I think in my heart of hearts, I, was into philosophy before I knew how to describe it as being into philosophy, if you know what I mean. Okay. Okay. So growing up as a, as a kid, like one of, one of the things that I remember enjoying most as a kid was being around my dad who's since passed, but being around my dad and sort of like, like every conversation that anyone got into with him was always like, it was never a short conversation. <laughs> and like sort of like bearing witness to seeing him like like push folks and ask questions and ask questions that nobody else was thinking about and, and seeing co- the conversation unfold in all sorts of surprising and unexpected ways. Like I just got like a kick out of that shit as a child. So I just love seeing that. And so... That was my passion before I knew it, that it had a name, like just sort of like discovering interesting questions and thinking about thinking about questions 
primarily and fundamentally instead of sort of being bogged down with premature solutions, if I could put it that way. So, so that was my interest ever since I sort of knew myself as me, if that makes sense. Did you, did you major in philosophy? So that's another interesting thing. So because, so no, so, so the answer to the question is no. So I did not major in philosophy. And I think one of the reasons I didn't major in philosophy, one of the main reasons I would say. So, so coming from, so I came to the U.S. to go to college from Trinidad. And, and I think it's still, I think it's safe to, to say this sort of as a general rule growing up in you know, the global South slash third world countries. For kids like me who tended to do pretty okay in school, the trajectory was assumed to be either medicine or engineering or law, right? So you, yeah, you're like a good student, you get good grades, you're either going to be a doctor, an engineer or a lawyer. And so that was just, that was just the choices that I, that I, that was always sort of given to me from which to choose. And so starting college in the US, I decided to major in biology because I figured I would I would become a doctor. So 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 I think my my coming from a place like Trinidad or going through my high school career in a place like Trinidad had a lot to do with why I didn't really I didn't really think about philosophy or philosophy like vocations as one of my options starting off. So I didn't major in philosophy. I discovered it like super late, actually. I was like already in my third year before I discovered philosophy. Well, I am glad you discovered it. And I'm excited about this interview because I have lots of questions. So before we get into kind of like the broad meat of our, of our, of our topic today, I think it's important to get clear on some terms that I think is going to come up repeatedly throughout this interview. I think these are also terms that I think that are being thrown around online, in woke communities, in the academy. And I don't think that a lot of people are necessarily clear about what they really mean. So these are the three terms. And I wonder if you can just define the following for us. So the first term is, is colonial. Second term is post-colonial. And the third term is decoloniality. Okay. Yeah, you're right. They're like, three pretty big buzzwords these days, at least in, in my uh, communities. So I'll, I'll define it the way I have come to understand them and how I use them to think about the things that I find myself thinking about. So which is not to say it's like these are the definitions of these three terms, but I think, I think they're working definitions. So colonial, right? Was that the first one? Yes. yes. Right. So, so colonial coming from colonialism, right? So a colonial relationship, at least as I see it, between two nations or two uh, states is a relationship in which one nation's sovereignty or sense of political autonomy is, is, sub- is subjected or, or maybe subjugated through that relationship to the power of the other nation in that relationship, right? So it's a relationship between colony and empire. And the sovereignty of the colony is sort of is sort of subjugated to the power of the empire, right? And and there's all sorts of like economic and political and social implications out of that colonial relationship. So that's how I would define colonial. And then post-colonial, I think the post in the post-colonial is in a sense 
we could we could read that really in a, in a literal sense, right? It's the time period after the end of that colonial relationship between colony and empire. So post-colonial, in a sense, is whatever comes after that colony is no longer a colony in the strict sense, but has some sort of independence or political sovereignty relative to what it used to have through the colonial relationship. So that I, I understand the post to mean what comes after, right? Or the relationship that comes after. Having said that, and I think, so this is kind of going to get me into this, a definition of decoloniality. So having said that about the post and the post-colonial, there's, there's a sense in which, and in fact, this is historically what tends to happen, there's a sense in which the time after the colonial relationship is still very much shaped and informed by a colonial-like re- relationship. So in other words, so, so, so very often the post-colonial period is, is shaped and determined and organized through systems that of coloniality. Right. So in other words, the the strict colonial relationship is gone, but the longstanding patterns of power and and relation and symbolic orders and, and relationships that got shaped through that colonial relationship sort of outlast the actual relationship between colony and colonizer or colony and empire. Right. So often the post-colonial period is a period where coloniality continues to inform not only structural politics, but sort of everyday life, right? And then, and then so decoloniality, at least as I understand it, would be a delinking or undoing of that, of those longstanding patterns that we tend to name coloniality, right? So ideally, we would want the post-colonial period to be a period of decoloniality, but but bringing it into that decolonial, uh, bringing it into that 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 kind of decoloniality actually takes work, right? Because left on it left on its own, post-colonialism tends to reproduce patterns of colonialism or coloniality is what you would name those patterns. Yes, yes. So is the act of or the process of decoloniality, it's not just in the psychological sense, as Fanona said, right? Is it, is it, is it more, is, is it much broader than that? Yeah, I think it's everything, right? And, and Fanon is like, his work is like especially good and powerful and clear about, about helping us understand, understand colonialism in this way, right? So one of the things I get from Fanon that I appreciate, like much of us who study Fanon, is the ways in which he um, is really clear about how total and totalizing colonialism and its effects are, right? And so, and so, to t- to take that that totality for what it is, to take it seriously, is to understand that the work of, of decolonizing is psychological, cultural, social, political, economic, right? It's like it it needs to be as pervasive as coloniality actually is. Right. What role does the, does the stereotype play in all of this? So, so I locate the work of the stereotype, both in the, the period of colonialism and in, and in the post-colonial period of coloniality. 
the stereotype we could understand as a tool of the kinds of discursive and symbolic violence that is part of a colonization, right? And so the way I've, I've written about how the stereotype functions both in colonialism and coloniality, you know, in the post-colonial period, is to think about to think about the stereotype as the ways in which colonial powers, discursive powers, how do I put it, sort of are able to, to lock or, or trap or locate certain kinds of bodies so that they can be more easily identified and managed for the sake of, of colonial power structures. Okay. Give me right? an example. So, for instance, to be a Black woman in, I won't say not, not philosophy, but in academia, right? To have a body that is gendered and racialized in a particular way. And so to be identified as, as a woman of color, right? And so you walk into an academic space, right? And then in that space, because that space, I'll go ahead and say for the most part, participates in structures of coloniality, right? There are certain assumptions and expectations that pertain to Black women's bodies, right? <clears throat> that we're not capable of, of producing rigorous systems of knowledge, that we're not capable of participating in certain kinds of rationality, that we're too affective or emotive. And so what we say and what we don't say is 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 not sufficiently objective to be taken seriously, right? And so and so you could think of that as all of the uh, the, the contents, if you will, of the kinds of stereotypes that, that tend to sort of uh, lock racialized and gendered bodies in a particular discursive space, so that so that that space can continue reproducing the kinds of colonial power relations that it wants to produce, that it wants to reproduce, okay. right? It's sort of like, a, so, so you, it's almost as if the stereotype quarantines certain racialized and gendered bodies for the sake of keeping that sort of man, that Manichaean divide, to go back to Fanon, to keep that, you know, to keep that divide very clear and strict. So this is where, this is where the white rational space begins and this is where it ends. There's a stereotype work on the the converse. So you have the, I guess you can say the subjugated body. Of course, it's being stereotyped. But what about those that are now in positions of power? Are they also stereotyping this in this sense? Well, in a different sense, but are, are they also stereotyped? Yeah, I think that, that a consequence of colonialism and coloniality is that it gives us certain scripts that we're mandated to take on and play out, right? So there are certain assumptions and expectations about white male bodies, white male heterosexual bodies, right, that pertain to those kinds of bodies. But what I have been interested in and the way I write about how stereotypes reproduce colonial violence has everything to do with the directionality of power, right? So what it means for me to be quarantined, quarantined by a stereotype with respect to how my body is located in that power matrix how that plays out and what that means is going to be very different from the way a stereotype pertains or applies to a white male body and mandates certain behaviors of that white male body, right? Our our locations in the 
in the on the chessboard, if you will, uh, are very different. So, so critical theorist Homi Baba introduces us to mimicry and suggests that it is subversive. Can you explain for us his his view? I know it's broad as <laughs> it's a lot, uh, but can you explain for us his view and why he thinks through mimicry we can, as you quote in your work, quote, reclaim for myself an agency robbed through stereotypical discourse, end quote. Sure. So to go back to what's problematic and violating about the stereotype, right? So, so in being stereotyped in the way we just described, my body in this colonial setting sort of oscillates between being hypervisible or being invisible, right? So, so in other words, you walk into a room and you feel like everybody is looking at you. It's like, oh shit, why are all these people looking at me? Or you walk into a room and nobody notices that you're there. Or you're walking on a hallway and people are like legit bumping into you. And it's like, Jesus, don't people see that I'm here, right? So it's like that oscillation between being hypervisible and being invisible. But through either of those sides of the oscillation, I'm not really there, right? So what is seen of me when I'm hypervisible is not really me. It, it's a marker of me being absent from the scene. And similarly, when hyper-invisible, right, it's the same thing, right? What I'm, I'm absent from the scene, right? And so at least on my reading of Baba's conception of mimicry is that he wants to use that, that logic of erasure, in other words, right? He wants to use that logic of erasure and repurpose it for transgressive purposes, right? And so mimicry, so the subject of mimicry, he calls it the mimic man, right? The mimic man in this colonial scene is going to be one that the, the colonial gaze can't quite figure out. He's an other that's sort of authorized to be there. And his being authorized to be there is a consequence of him, at least from the looks of it, you know, sort of adopting rules of whiteness um, as like the, the proper way to be human. But there's another sense in which he could just be mocking those rules of whiteness, right? So through mimicry or through this subject position of the mimic man, it's, al it's always an almost but not quite or, or a slippage. So, so now you see me, now you don't kind of thing, right? So that's uh, Baba's phrase, this, this, this slippage, this doubling, this, this splitting of, of, of presence and absence. And so Baba's claim seems to be that the kinds of erasure that the colonial stereotype produces so as to do violence to me and to my body can be repurposed through mimicry. And so that erasure is used almost like a, as a tool of trickery and mockery of the colonial gaze, right? Almost like, oh, you want to erase me? Okay, I'll stay erased and I'll, I'll just screw with you in my erasure, right? And that's my, that's my reading of how he wants to, pres to offer mimicry as a possible sort of transgressive or subversive praxis. So you not only have a reading, but you also have a critical response. <laughs> yeah, I do. What is, what is, what is your, your critical response to his proposal of mimicry? So, when, so my, my problem with mimicry, or, or my problem with using the 
use deploying the kinds of this kind of colonial erasure for transgressive practices. I should preface it by saying comes from um, my own very personal experience as as a migrant, right? As someone who, you know, left home and has been away from home for most of her adult life and is really sort of like in between, right? So so for so for me, questions of what it means to feel at home or be at home, questions of how to articulate and find mechanisms of belonging, particularly in spaces when where we're not supposed to feel as though we belong, has always sort of been in the back of my mind and sort of driven my, you know, what I write about and how I how I read um, various scholars. And so those sorts of concerns have, you know, they're like front and center in how I hear what Baba has to say about mimicry. And so my critical reading of mimicry is that as a transgressive practice, I don't think it pays sufficient sufficient attention or allows us to think um, sufficiently about this need and desire to feel grounded and at home and quite frankly, solid in these spaces that are all about, you know, um, erasing us. And that's really my one and only problem with mimicry. You know, I like the now you see me, now you don't kind of thing. I, I think that's 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 cool and 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 powerful. But for the most part, stereotype subjects, I think, you know, this feeling of being fragmented and inchoate, if you will, is taxing and tiring and part of the subjection that one feels on the, the colonial stereotype. So. So you see, but you have an answer to what you describe as 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 the shortcomings of his proposal, and your answer your answer is bad faith, and and that's quite interesting to me. I mean, I've read a little work in existentialism. For those who've read work in existentialism, bad faith sounds familiar. So can you briefly describe to us what is bad faith, and 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 I guess more importantly, why is it for you a subversive anti colonial praxis? Yeah. Okay. So as it presents itself, right, in, um, you know, particularly in, in the philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, right? So just you, you think of the, of the human, right, what it means to be a human being. And we have these sort of two aspects or two pieces to us, if you will, right? One piece that has to do with our uh, freedom and capacity to choose, right? So, so, so to be a human being is to be this sort of, of choosing thing, right? I'm constantly, I'm constantly faced with my need to choose and I can't avoid it, right? I, I'm always, I always have to choose, right? So that's the freedom piece of me. But then there's this other piece of me that's not diametrically opposed to my freedom, but rather gives my freedom meaning or makes it make sense. And that's the, what Sartre would call the, the facticity or the factness Factness, pardon me, F-A-C-T-N-E-S-S, right? The the fact of my being a human being, right? And, and so, you know, simply put, facticity has to do with those aspects of our existence that we don't get to choose, but instead we have the freedom to choose what they mean for us, right? Like our bodies, how they're racialized or gendered, 
or sexualized, what other people think of us, right? So into just subjective encounters, that sort of thing. Those things that we sort of have to come to terms with, but we have the freedom to come to terms with them in ways that we choose or desire, right? And so so what Sartre would tell us is that to be a human being is to really be this kind of synthetic unity of freedom or transcendence is, is his tomb, but really means freedom, right? Freedom and facticity, right? So it's like two sides of a coin, if you will. And so what bad faith is, or what it describes, is a particular kind of encounter or a particular way of coming to terms with that synthetic unity of freedom and facticity, right? So one way bad faith can manifest itself is if I really emphasize the extent to which I'm free at the, ex- at the expense of that other piece of me, my facticity. And on the flip side, bad faith can manifest itself in ways that really overemphasize my facticity, right? Things about my existence that I really don't have, or that I didn't choose to be there at the expense of my freedom to give those things meaning, right? So bad faith can oscillate in any one of those two directions. So emphasizing facticity at the expense of transcendence or emphasizing my tra- transcendence at the expense of my facticity. So that, that I think, gives a, a pretty simple kind of overview of, of, of what bad faith really is. So that's interesting because my, my, my second question is, why is it for you a, a subversive anti-colonial practice, praxis? And I want to add something onto that question. How do I make sure... <laughs> then I'm doing it right. How do you, how do you make sure that you do, you're... How do I make sure? So if it's some flip, some flip sides and ways in which it seems like I can do it wrong or ways in... So, so how do I do it in the right way to make... And that right way be a subversive anti-colonial praxis? Right, yeah. So this gets kind of into the crux of how I, I've been thinking about bad faith as this subversive practice, right? So when I first, you know, and come like you know, read about bad faith and put this up, this, a particular modulation of bad faith, right? The, 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 the manifestation of bad faith that says I am in bad faith when I overemphasize my facticity at the expense of my freedom. Right. So what the questions that came to mind for me was, well, there's something, there's something kind of compelling and attractive even in a, a mode of being that that holds one's facticity close, right, and and emphasizes it, because to my mind, if if your sort of political and social existence is all about being stereotyped and being erased, and having to navigate space on this like super wobbly ground, right, then the form of being absent, always in between never really quite belonging. Hell, you know, like finding a finding a finding some facticity to plant one's ground on sounds kind of refreshing. And so so I think if if we read bad faith not so much at the pure ontological level, but maybe bring it down bring it down so that it, it speaks to real experiences of real subjects like stereotyped subjects, racialized and genderized subjects who undergo these sorts of discursive colonial violence, I think bad faith is a, or, or, or 
that manifestation of bad faith that searches for ground at the expense of freedom takes on a different meaning. And so, and so, you know, uh, so, so, so the, the bad faith that I'm offering as a subversive anti-colonial praxis is very much a, a sort of modified or reworked conception of bad faith to precisely take into account the co- these concrete sort of social and political concerns, right? But to your, the last, your last question about how do you know if you're doing it right, I don't have an answer to that question because precisely because I want, I'm thinking about bad faith in a way that's very much concretized and, and comes out of a lived experience. I think it's difficult to be prescriptive about it in, in, in the sense that I think I would have to be in order to answer your, the second piece of your question. And it, it really is about being in that, being in that concrete place and sort of doing what you need to do to, to, you know, make a way out of no way. And yeah. And I, so, and so I think bad faith should at least be part of the conversation when we think about how real life, real life folks, right. Undergoing real life violence uh, are able to like find ground and, and a sense of belonging for themselves. Let's go back to the example that you mentioned about being a black woman in academia, for example, because I just want to kind of put the praxis in in an example. So how would that, using that example, black woman in academic spaces who is stereotyped, how, what does exercising bad faith as a subversive intercolonial praxis, what would it look like in that, in that context? Or what can it look like in that context? Yeah. So one of the ways I think it can look is... Well, let me answer that question by backing up a little bit. And I'm, I'm going to come to my answer through a pretty famous example in Sartre's account of bad faith. Right. If that's OK. That's fine. Listen, listen, I'm an I'm a analytic philosopher. I probably would have no idea <laughs> what are you alluding to. So this will be all news. Didn't it? <laughs> oh, no, 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 well, well, that's good. That's exciting. I guess. To tell you <laughs> teach me. Teach time. me, Chris. Teach me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in his, uh, so he gives us a kind of bad faith, and there's a pretty famous example that he uses to 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 um, to articulate what bad faith looks like. Right? It's it's the waiter example. It's the example of this is this this waiter in a French cafe, and in the example, Sartre. So it's a so so the so the waiter is manifesting the kind of bad faith that overemphasizes his facticity, right? The fact of him being a waiter at the expense of his freedom, right? So in almost he did, have you heard of this example before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got to pat myself on the back on this one. Yeah, I heard of this one. I, carry on, carry on, carry on. <laughs> right. So you're you're an ally. You're a continental ally. <laughs> so right. So so this waiter is, you know, he's going through all of these articulations and performances and his movements are like super exaggerated. So in other words, He's choosing to carry out this performance so that he can forget that his being a waiter is a choice that he's made, right? So in other words, in that moment, and it's, it's really important for how I'm understanding bad faith, that this performance only applies, is only relevant, only has traction in the concrete moment, right? It, it's, it's not about whether or not it's the right thing to do in every single situation, but whether or not it's the right thing to do or what it means for this particular situation. 
right? And so all this whole, all these antics that this waiter is carrying on with is so that he can like coincide as closely as possible to his sort of waiter being, right? So, so to, to go back to, to, to go to your question now about like, what might this look like in real life, for instance, for a black woman who is in academia, which is a space that's very often white and male, right? What are some of the things that one might want to do that, or, or performances, right, that one might want to undertake so that you, you gel as closely as possible with the factness of your being? So that you might counter, right, and this is important, so that you could use that performance to counter the kind of wobbliness that you feel in that space, right? So it's not so much what you're doing, but what you're trying to achieve, right, through the performance. And so maybe I can, in that space, make a decision to be like super duper professorial, and I take special care and time into putting on an outfit that, you know, is sort of very, very prototypically professorial, right? I do my hair in a way that's very, very typically professorial. So in one sense, so, you know, somebody could say, well, look, that no, Chris, that's just you selling out, right? That's just you like losing yourself and caving in to the expectations of white academia. And what I want to say, the pushback that I want to give to that is, well, that's all well and good, but it could also be a way for me to to counteract the kind of wobbliness that I encounter so that I can be who I need to be and do what I need to do for the sake of some, for some sort of good life. So that's one instance. Another instance is, and this is something that I don't think I'm particularly good at, but, you know, walking into a space, this is on the flip side, walking into a space like this, that's like super white and super male. And in this context, sort of um, incredibly um, sort of first world Western, walking in that, into that space and being very intentional about my non-American accent, right? Which, which is something, right? So, so in other words, de- deploying my voice and my words that makes it abundantly clear that I am not American. Right, right. And, and really trying hard to stick, to, to get as close as possible to my like Trini facticity. <laughs> right. Right. But so that I can find some, some, somewhere to put, to plant my feet so that I can do what I need to do as an academic in that space. So in that kind of way that I think that bad faith could, could at least be considered as, as a kind of subversive mode of being. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. So many might think that if you are Black in philosophy, the historical figures that you will find most interesting will be Black figures. But that was not the case for you. At least not not initially. Uh, not initially, yes. Yeah. You're a Lebanese scholar. So people might ask, how did that happen? Yeah. You know what? I think I have an interesting story to answer that question. So it's like the end of my senior year and I've made decision, made the decision to go into graduate school for philosophy, get a PhD. And again, because I've come to terms with the fact that this has kind of 
been who I was and what I love to do ever since I knew myself, right? And so, you know, at that juncture, getting into a graduate program, particularly the kind of graduate program that I got into, right? A space like Memphis that was, you know, for the most part, a good place for Black women to be to get a PhD in philosophy, right? At the time that I was there, right? Getting into that space, you know, I feel in a very visceral way this expectation that you are in Memphis as a Black woman to get a PhD in philosophy. And so he, uh, working with, you know, someone like Robert Bernasconi, and so this is the kind of philosophy that you're going to do. And these are the kind of thinkers that you're going to read. And I don't know, I mean, perhaps it was me being stupid, but at the time I was pretty resentful of that expectation. And I wanted to, I wanted to come to philosophy on my own terms at my own pace, for my own reasons. And sure enough, I I did end up doing that kind of philosophy and reading those kinds of thinkers and, and you know, teaching my students in that particular kind of way, right? Grounded in questions pertaining to race and colonialism and so on and so forth. But I, I came to that at my pace, in my way. And, and, I, and, and I'm happy that, I, that, that that ended up being the case. So, so this summer, you will be directing Pixie at Penn State, yes. a program that focuses on diversifying the philosophy profession. Yes. Concerning issues of inclusion and diversity in the academy um, and philosophy in particular, what is one thing you wish you knew prior to entering the profession? And what is one thing you are glad you know now? One thing I, I wish I knew back then is that was that your first question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you're considering the age, the ages of a pixie students. Right. So a lot of them are undergrads, juniors, seniors. Some of them may be sophomores. Um, they're they're Their eyes are wide open. They're going to come to this program uh, full of full of diverse people, perhaps thinking that in another part of the world, <laughs> philosophy looks like this or the academy looks like this. And a lot of information they're going to be introduced to now. A lot of them may be coming from programs that are very much diverse. And so they're going to be learning a lot, being introduced to new stuff. And I always think back that there are a lot of programs now that I wish that I that was around when I was an undergrad. Right. In some ways, I think that's helpful because I think knowing what we lacked, we're able to give more. But I do wonder, you know, given that you're, you're planning for the program and you've just lived this experience, I wonder, what do you wish you knew concerning these kinds of issues uh, before you before you entered as you were their age? And then I, and then I just 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 wonder what is one thing that you just glad, you know, that a lot of people may not know, <laughs> even in a diverse body or in diverse spaces still don't know. Yeah. OK, so this is what I wish. This is what I wish I was aware of back then when I was at that bushy tail, wide eye stage. I wish I knew back then that I was not alone and I did not have to do philosophy and struggle with philosophy and struggle with the logistics of graduate school alone and in isolation. Because I think that's what I did for a significant part of my time in graduate school, because I didn't think that I had another option. I wasn't aware of the realness of the community that that I had that I could have accessed. I had access to even then. I just didn't know. And I think that's also what I know now that I'm great. Um, I'm, and I'm grateful for knowing that, like, we're not doing this alone. I think it's to it's to our our disadvantage and disempowerment to feel like we have to do this 
to do it alone. And when I say alone, I mean something as simple as being stuck writing a paper. I, I There are people that I can reach out to, you know, to something, you know, broader, like, you know, getting advice on some big career decision. Like we have a community um, that's that's way more vibrant now than it was when I started. But I'm grateful for that knowledge that that's a community that is there for me and that we're doing this whole philosophy thing together. I really do believe that. Well, Chris, a.k.a. FW, I didn't slip up and call you the nickname that I have for you. No, you did not. That was impressive, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, this was tremendous fun. I was very nervous, but you were... (laughs) A marvelous host, so I thank you for that. I appreciate it. No, you are wonderful. Thank you so much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.